Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I continued our deep dive into his cross-examination of Durst with a conversation about the second day of that cross. On today's episode, John steps back from that analysis to offer insights into how he and his team developed their narrative strategy for the trial. Lewin then moves on to talk about day three of his cross of Durst. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems to be critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, as we have done on previous episodes, sometimes, as I ask John Lewin about a specific section of his cross-examination of Robert Durst, we will play that section as it was presented on our Jury Duty podcast. In the case of this episode, that's Season 2, Episode 23 of Jury Duty. We begin today's episode by repeating the last minute or so of our previous installment, as Lewin uses an anecdote that Robert Durst recounted about his relationship with his wife, Kathy, first as an encapsulation of who he understood Robert Durst to be, and second as a window into how Lewin and his team developed their strategy to help the jury see Durst for who he really was. Here once again is L.A. Deputy D.A. John Lewin. The best description of the relationship, and it is literally the best description, is when Bob is explaining that we would go out to dinner, and I would say, why don't I'll get this, why don't you get a little of this, and we'll split it. And eventually, Kathy's like, no, I don't want to get that. You get what you're going to get, and I'll get what I'm going to get, and leave my food alone. That innocuous little story tells you volumes. So basically, Kathy grew up. What that story stands for is Kathy basically is saying, hey, I'm sick of your fucking bullshit. I don't want to deal with it anymore. And that was, you know, basically a metaphor for their relationship. I found that extremely powerful. I don't know about you. Do do, do, do you find that as powerful as I do? I do think it's a very apt description of the dynamic that I came to understand between them and the evolving nature of the relationship. And the best thing about it is who's giving the narrative. So it's one thing for somebody to say, hey, Bob, it seems like this is where your relationship was at, right? So if someone had told that story, you'd go, yeah, you know what, I bet that's very accurate. But when Bob tells the story, there's no debate. 
Lewin now pivots to use this as an example of how he and his team presented information to the jury so that they could understand the significance of that information as evidence against Robert Durst. So now this is where we are. Now Kathy disappears. Well, everybody knows listening to the story. Bob's the last one with her. It doesn't look good. And then we're getting to his versions of all the stuff that happened. That leads to the reinvestigation. Susan, you know, the call. We've proven it, Susan. So we did this very methodically. And if you look at all the parts of this case and the order that we did them, everything was designed to tell a chronological story that made sense. So if you do your case right, what you're doing is, is you're not just telling the jury what happened. You're setting them up in a complicated circumstantial case like this so that they know and expect where the story is going to go before you get there. So when Kathy disappears, of course Bob did it. Look what's going on in the relationship. When there's a call to Einstein, and we know Kathy's dead by the evidence who made the call. Oh, Susan is telling people she made it. Uh-oh, there's a reinvestigation. Susan is hitting Bob on the phone for money. Susan is telling Bob, I'm just going to tell the police what happened. Bob is going, uh-oh, and now Susan gets murdered. Well, that doesn't look good. That's before we even have any of his lies. If I just told you the chronology of what occurred, you would believe Bob killed Kathy. You would believe Bob killed Susan. Now, Morris is crazy. So you would probably have to have a little more information because you'd be like, why is Bob murdering the guy across the hall? But even when you explain that, it makes sense. So we did this very methodically. And what I, again, was entertained by are all these moron experts saying the jury's lost. They don't know what's going on. Why are they wasting time on this? The jury was never lost. The jury understood it all. And the way that we did it, in my opinion, was the most effective way to tell this story. And for people who say, well, it's not fair. You know, you're trying Bob for three cases. No, we're not. We had a special circuit attached. Everything about Kathy has to come in. It had to come under California law because it's a witness killing case. That's the motive. Without Kathy, how do you explain why Bob killed Susan? It doesn't make any sense. Why did Morris come in? Morris came in because it was a part of an overall common plan or scheme and Bob ended up giving the same excuse for Morris as he ended up giving for Susan. So all of it legally came in, should have come in, et cetera. And listen, Judge Wyndham did a very good job going through, making rulings. You know, this was not a situation where a judge just, you know, accepted whatever we said. And listen, I've been on plenty of cases where I brief everything. I know the evidence code extremely well. I've been doing this 30 years. Most judges are aware of that, and when I do a case, generally speaking, you know, I'm going to win most things I ask for because I ask for things I'm supposed to get, and I support it. Even so, Judge Wyndham went through everything, and then let him relitigate everything 16 times. So, yeah, so in all, the way that we told this story was the way the story had to be told, and cross-examination was done the same way. I started at the beginning, and I went to the end. Lewin's digression leads me to ask him about how he dealt with a particular habit Robert Durst displayed during his testimony. We will return to that exchange right after the break.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In the next part of our conversation, I turn Lewin back to a couple of instances that took place on the third day of his cross-examination of Robert Durst that seemed to be part of a habit for Durst. We covered these sections of the cross in episode 23 of season two of the Jury Duty podcast. Bob's habit of trying to shove in information that was both not admissible and irrelevant to the question that you asked. And there are two instances that come to mind. One is when Fadwa Najami was talking about the fact that there were no drugs there. And Bob brings up his allegation that Gilberta had been convicted of drug dealing. And the second is his repeated insistence on talking about the relationship between Kathy Durst and Dr. Cook at Albert Einstein. What was up with Bob doing that? And what was your feeling about it as it was happening? What was your response to it as it was happening? So that's typical for defendants and sometimes defense attorneys to do. It's not unusual. Now, the problem for Bob is that the information that he was trying to get in on Gilberta, this is, again, tell me how that information affects anything in the case. So what you're basically saying is Gilbert is not a credible person, correct? That's the translation for that. Gilbert is a bad person. The problem is Gilbert did not testify, and there was literally nothing that the evidence that she was involved in the case that wasn't independently proven. So, for instance, Gilberta ends up eventually finding the getting the itinerary. Well, Bob admits he wrote it. Through Strzok, Gilberta ends up saying that, you know, she ends up, you know, going through the train, et cetera. The defense let all that in. But Strzok didn't argue it anyway. So you have to ask yourself, what does he accomplish by showing that Gilberta, you know, is not a credible person, even if that's what he accomplished? doesn't accomplish anything. Bob also has her address in the car. So I looked at it. It's a typical Bob move. It's unethical, but it's ineffective. So I just thought, you know, you and by the way, and you look desperate with the jury. And the jury knew, and the judge knew. And I think the judge would have been much stricter with him and much tougher with him if the judge thought that any of the bullshit he was doing was going to make a shift in a difference. So the second issue, which is the stuff with Cook, at points, if you remember, they originally, what they tried to bring in was, Dr. Cook had said that actually when he was interviewed and they brought this up, that I didn't deal with Kathy at all. She had a special relationship with Dr. Cooperman. So that's what they were trying to get at. Now, I knew, which I thought was funny, Albert Cooperman was not just loved. 
he was beloved by everybody at Einstein. I went back there. I think he was married to his wife for something like 60 years. The idea that Al Cooperman had some improper relationship with Kathy was laughable. And that's where they went originally. And they actually asked him about it during his conditional examination. They tried to, you know, imply that there was something going on. It was funny to me. It made no sense at all. One of the problems that we had in the case, and this was a problem, was that Dr. Cook apparently had told Cooperman to expect a call from Kathy, but not a call that she's not showing up for work. But basically what that would have been was a call that she was having problems. And the reason that would have happened is, remember, things were going better, but she's had the issues on the rotation with Dr. Halperin, if you remember, with Peter Halperin, which is one of her last rotations. She still did well, but so Cook was aware of that. So Cook is telling Cooper and expect a call from Kathy. Now, the defense, you, know, you can't blame him, tried to jump, aha, that's the call you're going to get. That is why I was very clear, and again, this was strategic on our part. It's not just that Kathy called the dean of the medical school, which makes zero sense for the following reasons. Number one, and again, I think I've said this before, my wife is a pediatric reconstructive plastic surgeon. We were together when she was in medical school. We were together when she was in college. We were together when she went through residency. I know how residency works. I know how medical school works. So first of all, the idea that Kathy would call the dean doesn't make any sense, and every doctor said it. But it's deeper than that. She's not going to call the dean when she's already having issues to tell him, I'm going to be gone today, because, one, he's never going to find out about it. Her, a rotation is not going to call the dean and say, so-and-so was late today. Number two, you're not going to call the person after the rotation has started. The call happens between 9 and 11. Kathy was due there at 9. Number three, and most important, if you're going to call the dean, which doesn't make any sense, you're still going to have to call the service that's expecting you. We would try to explain and figure out ourselves what's the deal with the shit with Cook. And what I came back with was, you know, Cook is telling Cooperman Kathy's having some difficulties because he's been made aware of it. I'm going to be gone. She might be contacting you. There was never any discussion of Kathy's going to be calling in sick. Remember, Kathy did very well at that rotation. She passed that rotation. So I wasn't worried about the Cook stuff. That was minor stuff. They're like a politician. They threw it out there to test, you know, they leaked that, you know, hey, we might be opening the border, whatever, just to kind of see what how people respond. They kind of floated the idea that maybe Kathy had a relationship with Cooperman, and you never saw that come up again. They were at least smart enough not to go there. You know, it's funny so, because I read Bob's implication in that testimony and really not knowing anything about the backstory of the posturing from the defense. But I read it that he was implying that Kathy had a relationship with Cook, that that was. Oh, well, I'm not even I'm not talking about uh, for, Bob doesn't know anything. <laughs> I'm not talking about Bob, Bob at all. I'm saying the defense was looking at the records. And if you remember, when they conditionally examined Cooperman, they tried to bring up the idea that he had a special relationship with Kathy. They right. quoted Cook. And if you remember, Cooperman's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, again, we talk about half of winning the battle is picking out what the battle is going to be. And one of the battles I wanted to have was, please, impugn Albert Cooperman's credibility and integrity. Please. go. You know, why don't you accuse him of having an affair with Kathy? Hey, go all the way with that. Have fun. You know, we'll blow the shit out of you. That's going to go nowhere. And if you notice, I covered... And, and it was subtle, but I covered with a lot of these witnesses what was Al Cooperman like. 
don't know if you recall this. And everybody raved about Al Cooper. You know, he was the gene, et cetera. So I wasn't worried about that. Remember, Bob didn't know the evidence in this case. Now, why is that? You'd have to ask the defense. You can look at jail records. They sure, they sure didn't meet with him much. But, you know, I would have expected if it were me and I were Bob, I would have had all the discovery and I would have been going over everything I could go over. In this next section of our discussion, Lewin and I talk about another memorable exchange from day three of Lewin's Cross of Durst. Here, I will play an excerpt from the actual exchange as presented in season two, episode 23 of this Jury Duty podcast. So I want to point out another great exchange between you and Bob where I thought your response was actually pitch perfect. So you're talking about his conversation with Jarecki and his statements about the abuse of Kathy and the fight at the Christmas party. And Durst said, By the time the interview had gotten to the third day, I was beginning to think that maybe I had made a mistake and I was not going along with all of Andrew's directions. So, Mr. Durst, when you said, I don't think I told you yesterday that we had a pushing, shoving argument, when you said that on the third day, you knew that was a lie, correct? Because you knew you had said that to him the day before. Is that right? I lied to Andrew repeatedly. Which, so which version, were you lying on the 12th or the 13th or both? Oh. How are we supposed to figure out when you're lying and when you're telling the truth? I don't know. If you think of it, let me know. Interrupt me. (laughs) Yeah, so listen, those comments slash questions, they might be humorous but they're meant to make a point, okay? They're meant to emphasize a point. And the emphasis of that point was that, hey, listen, you're full of shit. We all know you're full of shit. So, you know, I need more. So that's also I'll say, oh, don't worry, we'll wait. One of my favorite things to do with lying witnesses when they're struggling is to just be silent. Don't worry, we'll wait. And everyone's watching. They're getting more nervous. You can see the sweat, you know, that beads up. Now, for Bob, it's a little different because he loves the attention. And I've never seen somebody lie so poorly and act as if, you know, I mean, Bob is down 200 to nothing. And if you look at him, it looks like, you know, he's ahead 200 to nothing. So so is that complete delusion? Does he just not care what the score is? I don't know. But if you had to gauge how are we doing by Bob's responses, you would think, wow, Bob's winning this thing. I don't know if you noticed that. Did you notice that? Yeah, although, like I said, I think his tell was as he went into more detail, you knew he was lying. Maybe Bob no, no, didn't. No, no, no. I, I don't mean about the line, whether he's lying or not. I'm saying that no matter how much he would get impeached, how bad it was, you never really saw Bob, like, giving the response of, yeah, this is going terrible, this needs to end. Bob always acted like he was winning. He would say the most devastating thing, and the look on his face would be, yeah, I just got him. And I don't think he was acting. I don't think he cares. I think for Bob, winning was being up there. Winning was, I think that's right, and that's why I say I don't think there was ever any conscious defeat 
hate for Bob, but the tells of when he was prevaricating was when he would go into details like the Flotaki well, rug that's his tell. Story. Yeah, that's his tell for lying. I want to back up. A lot of people after the jinx, so funny, they said, hey, Bob's got to tell. When he's lying, he starts burping. That wasn't right. And we knew very early on, and I've described this, what Bob does is when Bob is hit with something that he's not expecting, he can't answer. He literally goes on autopilot, and he just starts, um, the Revolutionary War began in 1776. Uh, it was fought by, yeah, he just starts coming up with facts. This is the zip code that you use when you want to send something to Susan. And what he's doing is he is mindlessly mumbling while his brain tries to figure out where is he going to go next, what can he say. And the Fotati rug, he actually did. That's the second time that's come up. He did the same thing. There was a clip, if you remember, there's a slide that I have that we used that talked about, you know, Bob Durst's response and how he just starts mumbling. And we literally did a, you, you fly from New York to Eureka, and you, we had a slide that Ethan did, it was brilliant, where it's just Bob's mumblings on top of each other. And yeah, that's his tell. You know that when he does that, what's happened is, is Bob is stunned, and he is trying to quickly explain what happened. I want to talk for a moment about Bob's relationship with Prudence Farrow and your conversation with him about that. It was a pretty extensive back and forth between the two of you, and it culminated with you saying, So I'm not asking what Prudence wanted in terms of you wanted to pursue a relationship with Prudence by your own statement. Kathy did not want you to pursue a relationship with Prudence. And I'm asking you, how did that get resolved? Kathy disappeared. Yes, that is how it got resolved, isn't it? So that's one of those where I'm like, oh, my God, did you just say that? You know, that's one of those things to listen. Again, I want to talk about what I said before. You know, cross-examination 101, which I don't agree with, is never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. I don't know what the answer to that question is to me. But I know what happened, and I'm very confident that there is not a good answer. And I'm very confident that if somehow there is a decent answer, I will just ask another question and he'll dig himself worse. Did I expect when I asked it that Bob is going to say that, you know, Kathy disappeared? No, I didn't expect that. Was that incredibly damning? Absolutely. I, I mean, I watched the jurors' faces when he said that and they were just like, oh, my God, you know, that was crazy. So the next response, and again, in a situation where, you for sure did not know this was going to be his response, but boy, did you have fun with it. Mr. Durst, did you kill your wife, Kathy, and then take the earrings off of her body and put them back in Riverside Drive so you have them? Thinking about that makes my skin crawl. The answer is no, I did not kill my wife. And I did not take her earrings off of her ears. Just want to understand, thinking about removing earrings from your wife makes your skin crawl. How about dismemberment? Does that make your skin crawl? Absolutely. Yeah, listen, that's just fun. That is just reminding the jury, listen, this guy has dismembered a corpse, and now he's out there basically, like, asking my question, like, how dare you suggest something so macabre, right? With, you know, uh, how dare you suggest that I could do something like that? It's the very thought of it makes my skin crawl. Dude, you dismembered a fucking corpse. You admitted you dismembered a corpse. 
probably best not to play that card. And again, he doesn't think. He just answers. And when he answers, he's very restrictive. So Bob answers every question as if that's the only question out there. No one has any other additional information, and no follow-up questions will come. So it's like, yeah, okay, he gives a crazy answer as if, like, the jury doesn't already have information that the answer is bullshit or that I won't be able to follow up and show it's bullshit. It's, again, it's an arrogance of I can answer. And, again, this is why we played the clip. Remember what Bob said about why he lied to Strzok, okay? And it's really telling for Bob. It's one of his best quotes in the entire case, which is, who knew that police would do oodles of investigation? I was not used to having my veracity questioned. I it was like a negotiation. I said it was going to be like this, and that's it. That is an absolutely true statement by Bob Durst of how he felt. It's not accurate, but it's absolutely true. Bob believed that he could say whatever he wanted and that his whole life has been, if you look at it, and this is why Bob's no master criminal. Bob made enough mistakes in these cases to get convicted 17 time. He was lucky. You know, again, and it's really true, if you look at what's the difference between Morris Black and Kathy, you know, there's one difference, and that difference is Bob left the newspaper with the address. So if you remove that one fact, Gary, do you know what you have in this case? Nothing. They never even find it. It's even better than Kathy because no one's even looking for Morris. So if he had not put the newspaper with the address in the bag. They find Morris's body, but they don't know who it is, right? Correct. Yep. Right. So so eventually, maybe they're able to do print. Maybe they're not. Even then, they're not going to have likely an address of where Morris is. And when they do get there, what are they going to find? Bob's gone. They're going to look in Morris's place. They're not going to find anything there. They're not going to have any grounds to search Bob's place. Nothing. He completely gets away with it. Now, listen, that's not a master plan, but it's not bad. And listen, Bob does do in the midst of his mistake. You know, Bob goes and he he has the, the state of mind to go get the money order for the exact amount that Morris was paying. He goes and gets Morris's financial So. The defense tried to say, well, look, Morris is different than Kathy and Susan because look at all the evidence that was left behind with Morris. But that evidence only came up because of Bob's mistakes. Now, should Bob have dumped all the stuff, you know, in the trash in the house? No, because, Bob, again, this goes back to one of the problems with being a narcissistic psychopath who's led a privileged life where they can do whatever they want with no consequences is that you grow up not being afraid of consequences. What is one of the biggest motivators, Terry, that we all have? Fear. Fear is a tremendous motivator. Why do people study on exams? Because they don't want to do poorly. Why do lawyers work on their arguments? Because they don't want to embarrass themselves. Why do criminal defendants try to cover up their crimes? Because they don't want to go to jail. When you're a narcissistic, privileged psychopath who has lived your life with no consequences, you don't have a lot of fear. Most people would have said, you know, I'm going to do a lot better job covering up Morris. I'm not going to dump the shit, you know, in the trash can, the gun, the murder weapon, etc. I'm not going to do that. What if they find it? But that's not how Bob's lived his life. Bob has lived his life getting away with everything he's ever wanted. He's never been held accountable. He doesn't have fear. So, you know, but again, it's very interesting to know how close Bob was with getting away with Morris. Without the newspaper, Bob gets away with Morris. Not because it's any great crime, but because of who Morris is and just the, you know, attendant circumstances. And I'm going to go another way. Had there been something similar 
to bring the cops to the Westchester house early in South Salem. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten away with Captain, but there wasn't. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I move on in our deep dive to day four of his cross-examination of the defendant, Robert Durst. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>